Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Vanessa, I'm so happy to be covering a topic that we have not covered yet on this podcast. Shocking that we have not covered it. And this is the beginning, I hope, of many conversations on this subject. We are in conversation with Dr. Anisha Abraham, who's a pediatrician and adolescent health practitioner who I met in Hong Kong in 2015 when I was visiting to go speak at the Hong Kong International School. And Anisha, first of all, she's just an incredible human, but she also has this wealth of knowledge that comes from an incredible background that started with being the child of immigrant parents growing up in Delaware, and then having a multicultural life here in the US, and then moving overseas and getting educated and then teaching and speaking and practicing adolescent medicine all over the world. So she has worked in the US, Europe, and Asia. She has done clinical care. She has held leadership positions. She has worked in public health, in research, in media. Right now, her current title is Chief of the Division of Adolescent Medicine at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., And she is the director of the Adolescent Medicine Fellowship Program and the Donald Delaney Eating Disorder Clinic. She published a book a couple of years ago called Raising Global Teens, a practical handbook for parenting in the 21st century. 
which is a wonderful read. And we will link in the show notes and also make sure is on the Umla website at myumla.com on the resources page. I know everyone is going to love hearing from Anisha because she doesn't just cover this topic well, she covers it from a very unique perspective. And she lives it. She lives it day in and day out. And she is open and honest about the wonderful things about navigating cross-cultural life in your own family and the challenges. So we hope you enjoy and we'd love to hear any insights or questions from our listeners after you've had a chance to listen to this episode. Hi, Anisha. Hi, Kara. Hi, Vanessa. Hello. It is so great to see you. The last time we saw each other in person, we've seen each other a little bit here and there virtually, but the last time in person, I think was in Hong Kong. Is that possible? That's correct. And that's when you were out there to come and speak to our school. So it's wonderful to be reconnected. And I will tell you, it is so wonderful to know you and to have met you in the context of an international experience because you are at your core, probably the most internationally oriented pediatrician I know. (laughs) You come at this with personal expertise, which we're going to talk about, and also a fund of knowledge that's just incredible. And so, yes, I met you in Hong Kong, and then I flew back to LA and you moved to the Netherlands. And then you made your way back to the US during COVID. Was it just before or during? It was during the pandemic. Yeah. And so like the span in which I've known you, which is only a handful of years, there's three countries right there. Mm -hmm. And that's you. That's Anisha in a nutshell. And so we are so thrilled to have you because one topic that we have not covered yet on this podcast is the adolescent experience across the globe. And a second topic that we have not covered is understanding and supporting cross-cultural kids. And they are both massive topics. And we're going to try to hit on both of them with you. Well, I'm so excited. It's certainly something that I'm very um, passionate about. So excited to be able to share a little bit more. So let's start with, if you could just share for our listeners, your experience in medicine across the globe. Give people a sense of like where you've landed and what you were doing in those different places. And then we can really dive into the differences and your observations. Well, I'll start with my growing up years, which I think is also relevant, but I grew up um, as an Indian American. In fact, the first Indian American to graduate from my high school in Wilmington, Delaware. (laughs) And um, so certainly had that experience of two cultures. And I think that very much shaped my experience and also my interest in living abroad and bringing that all back together. I was also a military physician, so spent uh, a very long time um, working as an army doctor in a, in a number of communities, working with people that had lived in different cultures. As part of that time, I actually was stationed in Germany um, as a, a medical student and working um, there. I also, in my training, spent time in India and in the UK doing uh, work, volunteering, um, and, and learning about kind of cross-cultural practices. So I think this has very much shaped and informed me as a physician and continue to give me a lot of joy. And it wasn't until about 12 years ago that uh, we, in fact, 
moved abroad as a family and um, as an adolescent medicine physician, um, actually kind of first came to Hong Kong. And I will say that as much as, um, you know, medicine is the same wherever you are, not every country has the same kind of ability to have practice and so on. And so when I first moved to Hong Kong, they didn't have adolescent medicine, which is my specialty within pediatrics. And so I ended up doing a lot of work in public health and in global public health and taking teams to developing countries. But that really also helped me just to learn so much more about, again, the people that we're serving. And I also, at that point, started to work much more in international schools and communities with families that had kind of moved to Hong Kong and had that experience. And then about seven years ago, we moved to Amsterdam, Netherlands. In both places, I was on faculty at uh, major universities, but in the Netherlands, also started to work more with organizations and with consulates, but also with international schools, even teaching in schools, things like sexual health and mental health. And um, that's when I wrote the book, Raising Global Teens, which came out two years ago. Since then, we've, of course, come back to the United States. So I want to go back to a a very off-the-cuff comment you made at the start of describing your journey, which is there are a lot of similarities between a lot of these places, and there are a lot of differences. Yes. Can you start by describing some of the similarities that you have seen? And it's a little bit of an unfair question because I'm asking for you to generalize about, you know, entire countries when Mm -hmm. you've had very local experiences, I'm sure in corners of these countries, but are there some broad (laughs) strokes that you can paint for us? Well, I'll just start with the concept of puberty. And I know that's also a very important topic, but puberty and all of the various kind of milestones that one reaches is very much the same, regardless of where you are in the world. So whether you're in Hong Kong or you're in Delhi or you're in Amsterdam or any other place in the world, it's really fascinating that adolescents follow that same trajectory of changes and all of those same questions and the same, you know, understanding that the brain's probably going to take till you're 25 to fully develop. So I think that to me, it's just a really amazing and beautiful thing. The adolescents and in their essence, you know, all of those changes are fundamentally the same. Right. 1.4 <laughs> billion people are in puberty at yes. any given moment, right? Absolutely. It's a, a staggering number. Um, of course, depending on part of the world you're in, you might have a lot more adolescents than others. Um, mm. But again, I think that is a fundamental um, similarity, you know, across the world. The other thing that I will mention um, is that the pandemic has had a profound effect on adolescents in every single part of the world. And I say that because while I was living in the Netherlands, I really very much understood how difficult it was for adolescents there. I was still talking to my colleagues back in Hong Kong and then of course moved back to the United States and it didn't matter. You know, parents, caregivers, um, young people had the same questions and concerns when it came to the pandemic and particularly that epidemic of mental health issues after. And um, I think that that tremendous increase in anxiety, depression, and you know what we're seeing in terms of young people coming with those issues are very much the same. Now, whether or not kids get the support, um, people are able to get them in with the resources they need, that can depend on, of course, uh, the infrastructure and the country. But I will also say mental health issues are kind of very much the same across the board. So I want to dive into the concept of whether people across the world are aware and have normalized in their minds the fact that puberty now starts much earlier and whether other cultures are better prepared for that current reality or whether they're as kind of surprised and caught out as American 
parents and caregivers are to the fact that an eight-year-old with breast buds is perfectly normal these days. I'm curious what your observations have been, Anisha. That's a good question. And I think, as I mentioned, puberty and those changes are universal. The acceptance of puberty and also that process of individuation and autonomy is very culturally determined. And I think that's where Mm -hmm. I've seen the biggest difference. Again, my experience in the Netherlands was completely different from my experience in Hong Kong when it came to young people and their openness to talk about issues. And we'll come back to this later in terms of sexual health and whatever else. So I I think the short answer is there can be a huge variation in terms of culturally what people think of in terms of puberty. And sometimes they think, well, Western society puts way too much stock on this. You know, we don't even understand what this is. And, you know, they're, they're kids until they leave our home. So I think it really can vary in terms of whether or not people are sensitive to an eight-year-old developing breast buds or not. I think that very much depends on the community and the culture. And based upon where you've lived and practiced, would you say that what we're seeing here in the U.S. is playing out in those different parts of the world? Because there's some conflicting data there, right? I mean, it depends on, even in the U.S., what we're seeing is that when you look across different groups of kids divided by race, for instance, you can draw trend lines, but the actual number of kids who's represented by those racial groups is small compared to the total number of kids who may be of mixed race or of races that are not being studied. And so we can't even extrapolate data beyond the three groups that are now classified as, um, this is the terminology in the research, white, black, and Latina. Those are the three sort of buckets we have. So we're assuming that these trends are international. Is that what you experienced? I don't have the actual data to report from each of these countries. And that would take, I think, a, a deeper dive. My sense is that, again, we are seeing in certain communities that these issues are occurring. But again, I wouldn't be able to comment with all authority um, as to exactly what's happening. But it is also a very good point for us to look again at this information. If we only have certain groups that we're looking at in the United States, like what really is happening internationally, I think is incredibly important. And this question of who's looking for what internationally, as you said, just having the conversation is so culturally determined. Yes. That Right. That there are, I would imagine that the inference you were making in that statement earlier is in the Netherlands, they talk about it a lot more than in Hong Kong, right? There's a much more open dialogue about all of these things in, I mean, the the Dutch culture is just known as one of the most progressive cultures when it comes to physical and sexual health. I'm going to guess that part of what is making it hard to even know where the numbers are in different parts of the world is that in different parts of the world, it's hard to have the conversation. We have conversations with Shafia Zaloom from time to time. She's an incredible sex educator. And she talks specifically about the different cultural pieces in terms of having conversations in the classroom with kids or the original author of The Care and Keeping, Valerie Schaefer, who's an Asian woman, talks about how unexpected it was for the author of a book about the beginnings of puberty to be an Asian woman. And so, right. So I think all of that not only informs kind of how different cultures manage it, but also then 
it shapes our assumptions. Our assumptions are if certain cultures don't talk about it, it's not happening in certain cultures, right? And that gets muddied. And the, the data and the actual reality of it all gets kind of muddy. So I want to dig into the comment you made earlier about puberty means different things yes. in the different communities where you've lived, different cultures. And for some it's like you are a child until you leave my home, right? So the the age-old phrase of you are now a woman because you got your period wouldn't fly in a household where it's, you know, until you are a full-fledged adult, you are not a quote-unquote woman. Can you talk about what it was like in Hong Kong and compare and contrast that to Delhi, for instance, and what those experiences were like and how that sense of adulthood or adolescence or puberty played out in living in those places? Well, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but I can certainly talk about some of my experiences in each yeah. places because I think there's always kind of a range um, in terms of what actually is occurring. I will say that in general, um, in many parts of Asia, there's still a lot of stigma attached to talking about issues related to puberty and pubertal development. And again, particularly when it comes to sexual health um, and having those very open dialogues. And I know for a fact that I never talked to my own parents about a lot of these issues or about sexual health in particular. And I've asked a lot of my students because I was teaching when I was in Hong Kong, um, much less, you know, the young people that I was working with. And many of them had not had those conversations. Um, and certainly when I came kind of to more of the European side of things, many of the young people I was working with did tell me that those were things that they had more conversations with. So simply based on that, I think a lot of parents have been uncomfortable, have not known what to do, not have those conversations. And so a lot of my work was really like, how do we make sure everyone has these conversations? Even if you didn't have that with your own parent, like how do we make sure that you're a lot more comfortable? So coming back to your question, I think that there is a lot of stigma. And I think in general, regardless whether you're in Delhi or in Hong Kong, this is something that isn't talked about as much. And again, there's a lot more focus on family as a unit and respect and, you know, making sure that you have a good education. I mean, those are really core values. And this idea of, you know, you need to go out and be on your own and have your own job and to be independent financially are less of the focus. Um, certainly when I was living in the Netherlands, you know, kids were all on their bikes, which I love. And my boys to this day still continue to be on their bikes. But by the time you're seven or eight, you're really assumed that you're going to be biking on your own. And certainly by the time that you're done with high school, there was a real assumption that you were going to be out on your own, potentially university or working. And there was this really kind of real strong push to, you know, get kids out and doing their own thing and being independent, allowing them to make their own decisions. There's even a concept, and I'm now forgetting the actual term, but um, sometimes the Dutch have actually put kids into forests and kept them there like overnight, and they're supposed to find their way back. And it made a lot of uh, headlines in the New York Times and other places. They're like, how can people do this? There was this whole idea of being able to find your own feet and kind of being independent. And I think that just speaks to some of you know the culture and the cultural differences. I can certainly say as an Indian American, my parents would have never put me in a forest by themselves. They would have just, you know, this is just not in keeping with what they would have done. And, you know, it's a lot more about how do we continue to support you, you know, much through young adulthood, you know, until you get off and, and get married. That's a lot more of that rite of passage. My, so, my parents wouldn't have put me in a forest. Either. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. So, I, I read yeah. that article. I did actually do, I did do a program where I did a four day solo in a forest. So I guess in loco parentis, I was put in a forest. By myself. Okay, so <laughs> Amisha, how then you're an adolescent medicine doctor, you are trained 
to have conversations about all the tricky subjects. Yes. How did the culture in which you were living and practicing at the time inform the way you delivered the information or did it not change that at all? Mm. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor Meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order... Go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, magnesium breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at bioptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. 
Well, as an adolescent medicine physician, so much of what I think is important is having conversations about the full range. We talk about, um, of course, building on kids' unique strengths, but also talking about the home and education activities, drug, diet, sexuality, suicidality. I mean, these are very much a part of the conversations we have with young people. And so I very much wanted to continue to have those conversations regardless of where I was. And sometimes I felt that I was also informing my colleagues and teaching them about how important it was to have these conversations to also make sure they were done in a confidential way. The Mm. idea of autonomy and then confidentiality is also very different. And in many, for example, Asian healthcare settings, parents are with kids until they're 18. There is no sense of confidentiality in having these conversations. I've certainly had also Asian colleagues who have told me, well, we don't ask about sex because our kids don't have sex. I'm like, okay, well, that is not in keeping what I am and what I know of the <laughs> I'm working with. But there is a sense like we don't ask about it because it's just not happening. And so it's kind of trying to break that and change that and getting people to realize this is a very important part of the conversation is key. But certainly when I moved to the Netherlands, they also don't think of adolescent medicine or some of these screening practices in the same way even though they were doing a lot of this work. So also kind of starting to shape that was a part of what I was doing. So wherever I was, I was really trying to get people to really think about this unique time of development, which I think is so exciting and so important and how to ensure that we have that time where we can have those conversations and how families and caregivers can support. What was the hardest topic to talk about? Oh, uh, hands down sex. (laughs) all sex or just vaginal penile vaginal intercourse i would probably say that many parents feel very uncomfortable talking about uh, sex in general and i remember doing a talk in one of the schools in hong kong and it was about um, you know sexual health and your child and i had this huge group of fathers suddenly appear and they were all very nervous and they were all kind of sweating and they were all kind of collected at the place where you could get, you know, refreshments. And I'm like, you know, it's really wonderful to see so many fathers. And they said, well, our wives all sent us here because we have to talk about this and we really don't want to. And they were really nervous and it was wonderful. It was good to have, you know, this support group of people like having these conversations. So um, I think that is probably one of the more one of the topics that's probably very uncomfortable. Obviously, we haven't talked about things like social media. That's another you know area that a lot of parents still feel like they don't have the tools to have those conversations and they need a lot more and they're eager. But in terms of awkwardness, I think you know sexual health and every permutation of it is is really tough. How much does porn and masturbation get talked about? Because we find working in the US, yes. those are the two biggies for people. Well, or the two stickiest subjects yes. to navigate. I mean, right. biggies as in like the hardest, yeah. most awkward, most like that and vaginal discharge <laughs> is when people want to like just they turn white and then look like they want to escape the room. Is that something you would talk about in other cultures? How does that play out? Is it consistent with the U.S. where people are kind of like, oh, my God, I can't believe she's talking about this. Or are they somehow, you know, more comfortable with those topics? It is a topic I talked about regardless of where I was. I was actually just in London last week and I brought it up again. And, um, (laughs) you know, I think parents all kind of got very quiet and were looking with big eyes when I talked about, you know, how young sometimes, you know, kids are and how curious. 
And I had the unique opportunity of also working in schools consistently when I lived in the Netherlands and asking, you know, kids in seventh and eighth and ninth grade about porn and who was watching it and who was curious and what they thought and whether or not this was perhaps, you know, the most representative of a consensual relationship and really getting them to start to think about is this, you know, what's out there and, you know, what should we be doing with, with this information? Same with masturbation and just reminding kids it was completely normal. It was really interesting because then I got all these wonderful questions like, you know, how much is too much and will I lose all of my semen and will I never be able to, you know, have babies or whatever else and um, so on. So there's some really wonderful questions and it's always good to come bring those questions back to parents and say, your kids are curious they're doing these things. So this is the reality. Now let's really work on communicating and supporting them and normalizing some of this behavior or getting them better sense of what to do with this information. So it's it's universal. <laughs> Did you ever have an experience where you felt like you were pushing a topic that you were pushing it too far because culturally people weren't ready or the the flip side where you weren't pushing far enough that there was so much fluency I'm wondering specifically about the Netherlands here, where I have this perception that there's so much comfort around this, that if I were to teach a sex ed class in the Netherlands, the kids would be teaching me by fifth grade. I don't (laughs) really think that's the way it goes, but that's the fantasy of the way it goes because it feels like such an open conversation there. So the short answer is that I don't think I had an issue in terms of ever feeling that there was a complete barrier. But I think a lot of my work is trying to break down those barriers and make sure that I'm educating and informing and advocating. When it comes to Netherlands, it certainly is the gold standard. When it comes to sexual education, I think mm-hmm. start probably by the time kids are four or five with good touch and bad touch. And by the time that you're seven or eight, they're talking about sexual identity and gender identity very openly in Dutch schools. What I love about the Netherlands is that it's all about having a positive sexual relationship. And I've never seen that framed anywhere else in the world. And I bring that back and I talk about it all the time with my own trainees now um, in the US, but certainly other places, because we always talk so much about just don't have sex, like it shouldn't happen. And the short answer is it is, it's a continuum, right? And at some point you want your child to have that positive experience. But of course, you can also talk about, you know, when's the right time. And maybe if you're not ready, or you don't feel like this is consensual, or you feel like you don't have the protection, maybe you can delay that, like you should never start something until you're absolutely ready. And this is positive. And the Dutch data not to continue on, but it's so wonderful because it shows that young people that are in the Netherlands tend to become sexually active at later ages and other young people in, in Europe they tend to have lower rates of HIV and STIs and pregnancy than other teens. And when they do report being sexually active, they're more likely to say that it was something that was consensual. So there's a lot to be said. Right. So education does not lead to promiscuous behavior that is regrettable, but rather it really leads to making a good and positive choice and often a slower choice, which I think if we could hammer that message home to all of the parents who are skeptical about sexual education in particular, that would be the win for us, right? Understanding that information does not immediately convert into behavior. In fact, it slows it down. Absolutely. Can we now stay in the U.S. for a second? And let's talk about cross-cultural kids in the U.S. So You mentioned when you came back to the U.S., you have started integrating a lot of what you picked up around the globe here and working with your trainees who are so lucky to have your perspective. You're sort of weaving in all these things you've learned. Can you help our listeners understand 
what a cross-cultural approach looks like in the U.S. and sort of do it from the perspective of a pediatrician, but also maybe from the perspective of a parent? Absolutely. I'll just start by defining what a cross-cultural kid is. And that is a young person that's had more than one culture in their daily lives. And so many young people in the United States now have that experience of having more than one culture, having moved from community to community, having moved from country to country, having parents that come from another country, having parents from different kind of religious or ethnic or cultural backgrounds. And so that experience defines so many young people. And there's so many wonderful things that can come from having that experience. Um, I'm thinking about languages and uh, adaptability, a worldview, tolerance. I mean, this is the future of the world if everyone can have that experience, but there can be some challenges that can happen. For example, certainly grief and loss if you're experiencing change and moving from place to place. I experienced that, my kids did, many people do. Not quite knowing who to connect with. I felt this when I was growing up. I was the only Indian American until I went off to university and I saw other people that actually looked like me. I was surrounded by blonde hair, blue-eyed young girls until then. And I really felt like I was not someone that fit in. And a lot of young people have that experience. And so this idea, again, if you're cross-cultural of knowing, you know, who is my tribe? Who do I belong to? Where do I connect? Those are really kind of profound questions. And the reason I think this is so important is because so much of adolescence is of course, defining your physical identity and feeling fully comfortable with your body. And I know you've talked on the show about things like body image and, you know, all of those things in terms of accepting one's physical identity. And also part of adolescence is your gender and sexual identity. And there's so much that can come through in terms of being fully confident with that. But the other piece that we don't talk about is cultural identity. Mm -hmm. And again, part of adolescence is being fully developed in terms of understanding, you know, again, who am I? What is that culture? How does that shape me? And am I confident and comfortable with that? And so my kind of information I'd like to impart is making sure that parents and caregivers are having conversations with their kids about cultural identity. And in my work, and I've done a survey for about 350 young people you know, that were cross-cultural kids, and about 70% um, told me that they never had a conversation with their parents about this issue. And many times parents assume that everything is going to be okay, and that they're fine and they're giving support. But for many young people, this can be a really confusing part of their development. It's not quite being sure what to connect with. I want to explore the idea if you are a child in a family with parents of different backgrounds. So like in my household, I grew up in the U.S. My kids are living in the U.S. I'm married to an Englishman who grew up with a completely different, I mean, talk about different experiences in like sex ed and health ed and what should be talked about in my house. It was everything in my husband's house. Like you don't even use the anatomical terminology because those are quote bad words. So I'm curious, the advice and guidance you give families who are navigating, bringing together different religions, ethnicities, cultures, countries, how do you help them navigate that without shaming one parent or the other, without undermining just that that is part of who they are and how they grew up and not making anyone feel badly about the community that they come from, but also saying like, this is really what you need to be talking about, or this is like really what your kids need to know. How do you navigate that, Anisha? Well, it's a great question. And I think it comes back to 
first reminding parents that they need to have these conversations, just like we have conversations about everything else, making sure we sit down and say, so, you know, again, who do you connect with? What are you thinking right now in terms of what is your cultural identity? And I have a funny story, by the way, to share about this. I remember when I lived in Hong Kong, um, they have these international days where you can dress up for you know your country. And I asked my youngest at the time what he wanted to dress up as. And I said, you could be American and wear a cowboy outfit or something American. Um, you could be Indian because we have these beautiful Indian outfits. You could be German because, you know, Poppy is German and you can wear lederhosen. You can even do Chinese because we live in Hong Kong. He's like, no, mom, don't want to do any of those. I'm like, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, I want to be Korean. I said, Korean, we have a lot of countries that are covered, but Korean isn't one of them because my best friend is Korean. I'm like, that's who I want to be. And I just Uh, use that as like this really great example of how sometimes it can get really confusing when we have all of this going on, but then having those conversations and trying to navigate it and coming back to, okay, like, you know, we are going to give you exposure to all of these things. And we really want to make sure we have equal exposure in our family. We have this big mix for like every holiday. I'm sure many families do of we celebrate Christmas the day before because that's the German version of Christmas and then Christmas the day after with our Indian traditions. You know, there's there's always a bit of a hodgepodge of all of the different places that we've been and things that we celebrate. And that's really important. And so giving all of that kind of equal footing is important. Certainly travel is such an important piece of that. So I'm sure, Vanessa, you probably spend some time going back to the UK. We try to go back to other countries and make sure that we're connecting. Language is such an important piece of this. Um, and as we know, language really develops during adolescence. By the time you become adults like us, it's a lot harder to learn language. So giving kids that skill, my kids have learned a little Dutch and Chinese, and we really push the German and they have to go to German school. But these are ways to give kids roots. When I go back to India, because my parents assumed I could speak Malayalam, our native language, when they spoke mm-hmm. to me, I can't speak it well. I can understand it perfectly but I cannot speak it well. So when I go back to India and I, they ask me questions and then I can't answer, they're like, what kind of Indian are you? And so this ability to give language um, is a really important and powerful thing. I think these are just some examples of what we need to do to really ensure that kids are doing well. And to also realize when they become young adults and they leave us is really the time that sometimes it's defined. Many university students have told me that it didn't really hit them until they went off. And then they realized the kids that they connect with the most are the people that have had that same background. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, everyone they knew grew up in Iowa because they've had this other experience, maybe living somewhere else or much more global, they connected with other people that had, had that similar experience than other people that were from that same part of the state. So being aware of that, I think is important. What's an insensitivity that people in the US in particular, I would use that example, they sort of dish out without realizing it maybe. Can you come up with an example, either your lived experience or your patient's experiences where, boy, can we check ourselves here and just be aware of saying these things or acting these ways in terms of cultural insensitivity? I think the question really is, as someone who is not cross-cultural, I have down to my 23 and me is, you know, <laughs> it's it's really a very niche genetic pool yes. and cultural pool. I find myself very cautious about yes. not wanting to be insensitive to either the feelings or issues faced by people who come from what I consider a very enviable background, right? I mean, frankly, genetically, let's just start there. 
it is just better for the DNA <laughs> to be right mixed up. So from a genetic standpoint, if you've got a cross-cultural background, you've beat me already. But our world often, or at least here in the US, we often reward this very homogenous background or this homogenous. And really what the world has become is very heterogeneous, right? We have all sorts of cultures mixing now. We have right. all sorts of gene pools yeah. mixing now, which is, I personally see as an advance and an evolution. But I come from being raised at a time where homogeneity was the gold standard and there was a lot of cultural insensitivity. So I'm wondering if you can help people who are not from cross-cultural backgrounds understand what things they may do or say that are insensitive to people who come from a different background or a different walk of life. And it may be too generic. Something that we grapple with a lot is two areas, particularly in the book, we talk about this a lot, the topic of hair removal. There you go. And how different cultures approach hair removal. Another is the use of deodorant or not. (laughs) Right, right. And bathing practices across different parts of the country. I mean, those are ones that come up for us a lot as we're giving adults guidance and kids guidance about like kind of best practices in the United States. When should you shave? That's a perfect example. Is a question that implies that one should shave, right? So I think that's a perfect example. I think the short answer is being able to have conversations about who is at home and what are some of the practices at home that have shaped them. And it's become much more nuanced. I don't have a problem with someone asking me, where are you from? Because although I was born in Delaware, no one's really asking me, am I from Delaware? They're really asking, you know, you look like you're from some other part of the world. What, What country is that? And I will then very happily say I'm Indian American. But there are many people now that feel that that is a microaggression and that you shouldn't be asking that. And that somehow makes them feel like they are not part of the majority or somehow they're being put down for the color of their skin or their accent or something like that. So I think I've become more thoughtful in terms of what I ask, but certainly what I'm now encouraging my trainees to ask, because many of them also say they're uncomfortable asking this. And so I will probably broaden this by saying, tell me a little bit about what's been happening at home, like, you know, what languages are spoken, what religions Mm. are practiced, where are your parents from, and how does that shape then you? Because you know, if obviously I'm Indian, I know we all tend to be a little bit more hirsute, you know, this hair removal and whatever else is something that might be a little bit different, you know, for Indian families, but then asking, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what happens at home culturally when thinking about this? Is that something that you talk about or not talk about? Because we want to make sure that we're being thoughtful and sensitive to it. So coming back to what are, what are those practices and things that have shaped them, I think is a probably a more thoughtful way of asking this. So what happens then when you have a very age-appropriate rebellion coming (laughs) from the teenager, right? So there's what's happening at home and there are the familial cultural norms and traditions. And then there's the normal teenage experience of rejecting those. How have you navigated that? Well, a very important part of the cross-cultural adolescence is then deciding what parts to accept and what not, and for parents to be accepting of the fact that they may not take all of this on in the same way that their parents have. Every young person is going to have their own perspective. Um, There are going to be people that want to be chameleons, others that want to, you know, really broadcast exactly where they're coming from. There's many different ways that we take on this cultural identity. So coming back to parents and caregivers to say, you need to also be supportive and understanding of where they are. A normal part of adolescence is also that part of acceptance and uh, of identity and cultural identity formation. That's right. 
I feel like we could spend hours <laughs> just asking you question after question. I think a nice place to wrap, you've given us so much to think about and also some really good language and framing, not just with our own kids, but when we encounter new people in new cultures, ways to be inquisitive and curious in an approach that is respectful and non-judgmental. And that's something that, God, I feel like caring for teens is like, that's the constant battle is like, how do you get them to be interested in the world in a way that also doesn't dismiss or deride everything they see as I like to say they everything is either weird or annoying. So this is really helpful. Anisha, I'd love to hear from you as we wrap. If you had one piece of advice to a family that is making a home somewhere new, either across the country or across the world, and they are really worried about the health and wellness of their kids as they make that move. What is your guidance? Like if you could just give them just one thing to put in their pockets as they get on the plane, what would that be? I'm only allowed one thing. <laughs> oh, you can give many, you can give many, many things. Right. I just didn't want to pile on, you know, too much right. responsibility. Well, maybe three points. Um, the first is that having conversations are so protective right now and conversations create connections. And I know both of you have spent a very long time talking to parents and caregivers about how to have those important conversations, but particularly as we think about transition or change or cultural identity, again, coming back to those really powerful conversations. And the second point is sharing your personal story. And my father came on a Spanish cargo ship. It took 90 days to come to the United States. My mother had an arranged marriage with my father, met him twice, and they've been married for 50 plus years. And she lived all around the world. Uh, my father-in-law as a German, you know, was an adolescent at the aftermath of World War II and, you know, had to deal and grapple with all of this. So, you know, we all have these stories and um, being able to share those stories um, and not to keep them inside. It's also a very powerful thing. On a side note, I actually am now co-producer of a movie called One Small Visit. And um, it's a movie about my parents meeting Neil Armstrong and his family in 1969 in Ohio. And I happened to tell a girlfriend in Hong Kong the story. She made it into a movie. It's, uh, it was on the short list for the Oscars. And I was just at NATO headquarters last week sharing the story because the tagline is, from space, there is no borders. When you look down from space, there is no borders. We're all kind of universal and connected. This is a long way of saying that sharing stories can go a long way and can really help any young person to really understand where their parents are coming from. I think the third is that grief and loss can be really powerful when there's any change or transition. And so making sure that we are understanding that, that we have the power to allow people to say goodbye, to continue to have those connections, and that grief and loss can take many years to overcome. And then finally, as a pediatrician, knowing your child enough to realize if they are suffering or having challenges and getting other people to be involved. And I will just say, this is the power of the global village, right? Like when I first moved back um, and my boys were going through a really tough time of assimilating, it was during the pandemic, everything was virtual. I reached out to my mom and said, I don't know what to do. You know, my youngest is not doing well. Could you just get on and like do a Zoom call or FaceTime with him on a regular basis? Because I know how powerful you are and how much of an ally. And we know that having, you know, two or three trusted adults in a young person's life can be so powerful. And so making sure we tap into that global village and that we have other adults that can help us out when we can't do things well can be really, really helpful as we're going through these changes as well. It's amazing that we went this entire 
podcast without talking about the power of being connected by phones and screens. And I feel like that's exactly where we need to pick up the conversation with you next time, because it's a really interesting way to think about the difference between being a global kid today versus a generation or two ago. Right. Anisha, you're incredible. We are so lucky to have your voice and your experience and your stories. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. We can't even begin to articulate how important all of these life stories are. And so we hope that listeners will be motivated by you to share their cross-cultural experiences and to ask questions or share advice because ultimately each person's lived experience is valuable to understand and to hear and to reflect on. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Anisha. I hope you'll come back. I would love it. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com yet. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.